Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, Dr. Angela Jones joins us to read from The Souls of Black Folk, the 1903 W.E.B. Du Bois classic work of social theory. This is the first of a new type of Give Theory a Chance podcast, where contemporary social theorists introduce us to the specific passages that inspired them and then help us make sense of that text. When possible, I will include a link to a PDF so the listener can follow along. I hope this offers a useful aid for people first encountering these important ideas and hope it offers others a perfect chance to reconnect with their favorite readings from the past. Thanks for joining us again, Angela. My pleasure. It's great to be back. I should say that you are the first guest to try out this new format. So I appreciate you being willing to, in a sense, model it for anyone else who joins. And I'm, I'm hoping this is going to be very useful, both for any listener, but especially in the classroom and for students. Same. I'm really excited to be a part of this first podcast. And again, I also hope that it has a gotchable value for others. I'm hoping to get us started. You could talk a bit about why you chose this particular reading from W.E.B. Du Bois. Of course. I chose this passage because the first time I read it, I was genuinely moved, right? And as the title suggests, it spoke to my soul, to my life experiences. Um, I also chose this because my students love it. (laughs) And in my 14 or so years of teaching in higher ed, I've had a lot of success with this text in the classroom. You know, I find my students fatigued very quickly from the often dry prose of most academic texts. And Du Bois, frankly, is not only one of my favorite sociologists, he's also one of my favorite writers. Um, So I think this text is an opportunity to show students that sociological writing can be both poetic and theoretically valuable. Before we get into the text, I'm just curious, what are the different classes that you use this reading in? I use this text in a wide range of classes. So I will use this as a primer in my theory class as a primer for critical race theory. I use it in my intro to sociology classes. Um, so there's a, there's a range of courses that I've taught, courses that have been dedicated specifically to race and ethnicity, um, other kind of multiculturalism classes that I've taught over the years. So I think this text has, um, again, for folks who are listening, who are interested in teaching this material, I think that you can use this text in a really wide range of classes and across levels, right? So again, I've used this in, in intro classes, and I've also used this in upper division courses as well. Which is a big thing to say about a piece of theory, because often when you have something we call theory, you can't just assign it the primary text and intro, expect students to get anything from it. Absolutely. And I hope that this comes up at some point when we're talking, but that's what I love about this text is that the writing style is engaging. And I especially think the use of autoethnographic vignettes and first person accounts of dealing with white supremacy and racism is a really powerful way to introduce these concepts, you know, in, in theory to students. All right. Awesome. Well, let's um, let's get into the text then. I'll stop asking questions oh, around what we're fine. actually doing. <laughs> I'll, I'll resist that urge and let's just let's just go right into it. So maybe get us started. You can read a section and we'll talk. So in my classes, we usually enter the text right on the first page. And I generally ask them about the significance of this first passage. And then I'll give them a kind of leading question. And I'll ask my students. So does anybody remember Du Bois poses a question here? What does he ask? And what does it mean? Right. And then I'll field some responses from my students. And then we'll we'll dig into the text and we'll read from his first passage where Du Bois says, between me and the other world, there is ever an unmasked question, unasked by some through feelings of delicacy, by others through the difficulty of rightly framing it, 
all nevertheless flutter round it. They approached me in a half-hesitant sort of way, eye me curiously or compassionately. And then, instead of saying directly, how does it feel to be a problem? They say, oh, I know an excellent colored man in my town, or I fought at Mechanicsville, or do not these Southern outrages make your blood boil? At these I smile, or am interested, or reduce the boiling to a simmer as the occasion may require. To the real question, how does it feel to be a problem? I answer seldom a word. And so again, I'll return to my initial question and we unpack the question. How does it feel to be a problem? Right? I found that for students who have taken sociology courses, they're often well-versed in the language of stratification, right? They understand that the system of white supremacy produces racism, which shapes every social institution, right? They understand that institutionalized racism affects people's access to resources, produces discrimination and unequal macro level outcomes such as wages, right? Like they get that. Well, most of them get that. Um, what I don't think they spend enough time examining is what I call the psychological warfare of white supremacy. I want them to also think about how racism affects our experiences in the quotidian, right? What is it like to walk into any given social context, like every social context, and have people see you as a problem? How does that feel? And I guess I also want to add that now in what I'd call the bad reading of Du Bois, one could say that in this analysis, and we'll see as we move forward, that he kind of potentially open up the door for the advancement of a kind of what we might call a victimhood narrative. But I think what's so powerful about this text is that I think he so eloquently does the opposite. So instead, for me, he's opening up the door for analyses of modern day racism that's rooted in what uh, many decades later, somebody like Derek Bell would call or calls racial realism, right? Like until we accept the realities of white supremacy and what that means for black folks, we can't heal as a people or work to transform social institutions. So one of the things I'm excited about in recording this type of podcast is I get to be a student and I get to ask <laughs> questions and it's impossible for the listener to know whether I'm asking it to guide the conversation or I actually don't know. <laughs> <laughs> But what really interested me in the in the passage that you just read, the example was not people coming out, this they that he's talking about, and saying something immediately aggressive towards him, but rather he's saying things like, I know an excellent colored man in my town, or do not these southern outrages make your blood boil. And I'm wondering what we make of an emphasis on those type of interactions, which almost seem to be kind of happier and more polite. Absolutely. It's a really great question and something that comes up with my students as well. And I think what really resonates with them is that they're able to make connections between the examples that Du Bois gives us here and experiences that they've had in their own lives. And again, especially amongst um, the students of color in my classroom, who often, and I love the connections that they make here in this place and in other sections of the text between what we might now call microaggressions, right? That very often you interact with people who may think that, you know, that they're motivated uh, from a good place, right? Um, but at the same time, very often, 
often students will use examples of when somebody says, well, you know, but I have a black friend or something like that, as if this kind of mitigates these kind of racist microaggressions or, or lessons. And I think it reveals and something that ends up coming up, you know, in this text and, and especially in this section, as I always say to my students, and some listeners may have heard this expression before, but that the idea that privilege is invisible to people who have it. And so the kind of well-meaning people who might say something like, you know, my aunt is married to black man or, you know, or I have a black friend or, you know, in this case, I know an excellent colored man. That again, that for these folks, they very often, because privilege is invisible to people who have it, they don't necessarily even see the racialized undertones of the comments that they're making or how their comments may, even if they're well motivated, um, how their comments may affect people, right? And that again, for Du Bois in this situation, he can understand the racialized connotations of these comments in a way that this, again, ostensibly well-meaning white person may not. So at this point, we're left with this question he's posing to us about what does it mean to be a problem? But this is what he continues to explain throughout the text, right? Right. Okay, let's go right back in then. Absolutely. Um, and so picking up on this point, I usually have my students turn back to the text um, and I'll usually ask them, let me pick up on the second page specifically, and I ask them to recount a story Du Bois tells about an incident in school. So I usually have to provide them with a little bit of context here, right? So describing Du Bois' life growing up in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, and the relative privileges he had at the time. And the students immediately describe an event in school where a white girl refused to exchange cards with him as part of this kind of class activity. And so on page two, we usually jump in, this is towards the top of the page, about the third full sentence down. Um, and he says, in a wee wooden schoolhouse, something put it into the boys' and girls' heads to buy gorgeous visiting cards, 10 cents a package, an exchange. The exchange was married till one girl, a tall newcomer, refused my card, refused it preemptorily with a glance. Then it dawned upon me with a certain suddenness that I was different from the others, or like mayhap in heart and life and longing, but shut out from their world by a vast veil. I had thereafter no desire to tear down that veil to creep through. I held all beyond it in common contempt and lived above it in a region of blue sky and great wandering shadows. And I personally love that passage very, very much. Um, and I asked them to reflect on why Du Bois might have shared this story. And as I alluded to earlier, I also use this as a moment to introduce and note the usefulness of well-executed autoethnography. So this vignette, for me, is a really effective way to build theory, right? To show us, not just tell us how the veil works. So the veil is a metaphor for race, like, like a veil, it covers, right? So racism cloaks our characters, our brilliance, our greatness, such that in far too many contexts, like the young white girl from the anecdote, people see brown skin and their minds immediately draw from, we call these cognitive maps of reality that have been shaped by institutionalized white supremacy, among other systems. And then people often act based upon these racist discourses, which again shape how they see and behave in the world. And the conversations that I, that I enjoy the most with my students, um, based on this particular passage, is I'll ask them to expand on their understanding of the concept of the veil. 
right? And I, and I always, especially in my theory classes, I want them doing application. It's not enough that they understand the basic premise of the theory. I want them to be able to apply those concepts. And so um, I'll also ask them, you know, is the veil, is this a useful conceptual tool to think about how racism shapes social interaction, right? So I asked them to give me contemporary examples. And as we were talking about earlier, based on your question, this also usually leads to conversations about what folks now would call microaggressions. What do you make of the way that Du Bois talks about his relationship to the veil? So in that passage that you read, uh, the thing that stood out to me this time was where he states, I had thereafter no desire to tear down that veil, to creep through. I held all beyond it in common contempt and lived above it in a region of blue sky and great wandering shadows. That seems really significant, him, him saying, you know, I, I, I had no desire to tear it down. So what do we do with that? Right. And I think that there's other places in the text where he also expounds upon this. But I think the idea for me is that in, and this is why I think this text is such a great primer for critical race theory, right? Because this to me is what Derek Bell kind of meant about racial realism, right? That look, like, I have to understand that white supremacy is embedded in the fabric of this country. It's, it's part and parcel of this country's history and continues to shape all of our social institutions and mediate our social interactions with other people. I must accept that reality and move beyond that, right? Um, and recognize that, you know, and I think, you know, we, we often hold tight to these ideas that we can, especially for those who adhere to these kind of post-racial narratives, right? Like, oh, we've made so much progress, things aren't so bad. And I think for many of us, the idea is we need to be realistic about the permanence of white supremacy. And so for me, when he talks about no desire to tear down that veil, it's not that he doesn't want to reform or, or eradicate white supremacy, but I think this is rather about the reality of the permanence of white supremacy and saying, look, I'm not going to let that stop me from doing me, for continuing to show up for my people and fighting against these systems, right? That I'm going to be realistic about the permanence of this system, but yet I'm going to continue to fight and I'm going to continue to, again, still develop my myself um, in the remainder of that paragraph, which I normally don't read at length with my students because <laughs> I guess there's only so much reading we can do in class. But he goes on to say, look, in no matter basically what class <laughs> it was, whether it was in gym class or, you know, uh, D uh, Du Bois was famous also for being this really great orator and won all of these kind of debate competitions. And so he kind of goes on to say that, look, I realize that no matter how good I am, that white folks are always going to see me as a problem. But I have to focus on myself and my people and not worry as much about what these folks are saying and thinking about me. That's really helpful. And just to make sure that I get it, because it seems like such a central and important idea. So what he's saying is there could be this happy view of racial progress where once you do X, Y, and Z, the veil becomes transparent and people can actually see you for who you are. But look, I, Du Bois, have done X, Y, and Z. I've excelled at all these things and the veil is not suddenly transparent. The veil still exists and therefore one must move beyond it rather than engage in that kind of uh, hopeless quest. Is, is that right? Absolutely. I think that I think that was perfect. All right. So if I was a student, I'd be really happy right now that I got participation <laughs> credit. <laughs> all right. Let's get back into uh, another passage from the text that you think is in, uh, particularly important or revealing. 
Absolutely. So we continue our close reading and I aim to introduce the concept of double consciousness. Um, so it's a very famous passage that I point my students towards. This is uh, towards the bottom of page two. And Du Bois says, after the Egyptian and Indian, the Greek and Roman, the Teuton and Mongolian, the Negro is a sort of seventh son, born with a veil and gifted with second sight in this American world, a world which yields him no true self-consciousness, but only lets him see himself through the revelation of the other world. It is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. One ever feels his two-ness, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. And so here, my students usually latch on to one particular line. Um, and so I think it might be valuable just to highlight that again. Um, and it's this line where he says, it is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. And so as he says earlier in the passage, right, he recognizes despite all of his hard work and efforts that, and to quote him, he says, all their dazzling opportunities were theirs, not mine. But again, I like Du Bois' attention to affect, right? So historically, white supremacy has intentionally and brutally stripped Black folks of their cultures, kinship systems, history, and identities. So how does it feel? And these are the type of questions, the type of critical thinking questions that I pose to my students as we unpack this. How does it feel to see yourself through the eyes of others? In this case, through the eyes of racist white folks. How does it feel to measure your soul, your value through whiteness? How does it feel to know that people look at you with contempt and pity merely for existing in your beautiful skin, right? And I guess I also want to add, um, before I take any student questions, um, <laughs> what, <laughs> what I always highlight with my students, though, again, because I want to avoid that bad reading that I was talking about before, is this. If we look at the last sentence, yes, this double consciousness is real and can feel like a heavy load to carry. But what does he say, right? He says, there's two warring ideals uh, in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. So white supremacy has been trying to kill black and brown people's souls for centuries. But guess what? Black folks are strong and fight and learn to embrace this two-ness, the realities of living in this world. You know, and then he even takes us a step further. Um, and then there's this kind of final patches that we usually read together. But perhaps we can stop there. One of the things that always happens when I use this reading in class, and I guess I'm breaking character here <laughs> to talk about my own experience. Um, but one of the things that always happens, and let me get the exact line. It is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, the sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others. So we get to this section and I have a student raise their hand and they say, you know, well, we read Cooley or we've read Mead in other classes or this class. 
and we're always looking at ourselves from the from the view of the generalized other. So doesn't that mean everyone has a has a double consciousness? Um, so I'm wondering what we do with that potential misreading or kind of uh, superficial reading of this section. Absolutely. So I think, you know, if we're thinking about the looking glass self and these ideas that, you know, as social beings, surely um, we care what other folks think of us. We certainly measure our, you know, I think even here Marx's theory, we certainly value, come to value ourselves by the kind of mandates or logics of capitalism and political economy. Sure, I can appreciate that argument. But I think here we need to also appreciate how um, for Du Bois, we need to bring white supremacy into that conversation and racism into that conversation, right? Um, because I don't think that we can compare these kind of broad social experiences that we have comparing ourselves to others. And again, the way that white supremacy kind of forces people or creates these very different realities for people, right? I think that the first comparison that your students are making, I think, suggests that we live in a race-neutral world or a gender-neutral world. And I think it's important to think about how these other systems map onto how we're seeing other people or how we're comparing ourselves to others, right? So gender, race, um, again, all these other ability, all these other facets of our identity certainly shape and map onto how we're comparing ourselves to others. Or who can even do that, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think it also points to one of the ways that we can be sloppy in reading theory, and especially as students where we're confronted with longer text, is we pick a particular line and we focus on that and we don't look at what's surrounding it. So if you only look at the seeing yourself through the eyes of others, you can make that comparison to looking glass self. But then when you read the line before and after, you can see there's something different and more powerful that he's talking about. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. Let's. So let's. Should we? Should we head to another passage? Yeah. Sure. So in the final passage that I'll highlight um, is right where we left off, bottom of page two, going to the top of page three, and so it's the, the history of the American Negro is the history of this strife, this longing to attain self-conscious manhood, to merge his double self into a better and truer self. In this merging, he wishes neither of the older selves to be lost. He would not Africanize America, for America has too much to teach the world in Africa. He would not bleach his Negro soul in a flood of white Americanism, for he knows that Negro blood has a message for the world. He simply wishes to make it possible for a man to be both a Negro and an American without being cursed and spit upon by his fellows, without having the doors of opportunity closed roughly in his face. So what I love so much about this is the focus on negritude, right? This idea, the, the affirmation of the value of Black or African cultures, heritage, uh, identities, right? So we can simultaneously have honest conversations about the effects of white supremacy, but also do so in ways that make space not only for Black pain and suffering, but for Black joy beauty, consciousness, and empowerment. And I think that far too often in sociologists, in our attempts to highlight and make structural inequalities visible, you know, we often leave little room um, for what some psychologists and sociologists have called positive marginality. So yes, Black objectness and the brutality of white supremacy is critical. We need to be talking about that. But so is Black power and joy. And that's something that I think, I think that's what Du Bois is trying to say here. 
that seems like a perfect note to end on. It really captures a few of the themes that we discussed from this reading. And most of all, thank you again for being the first person to try out this type of Give Theory a Chance podcast. And I hope the listeners enjoy it as much as I did. Um, I really, I really enjoyed getting to work through this text again. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing our theme music, undergraduate sociologists Beth Heberger, Alicia Rios, and Simone Graham for their help with the project, and most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance. Thank you.